Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Search for Serotonin. I am your host, Carolyn Farrick, and I have another guest with us today. So today I'm actually joined by my mom, Anne Farrick. So Anne, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to have um, my mom on today to just talk a little bit about, you know, her experience with mental health. She doesn't necessarily struggle with mental health issues, but she has two kids that have struggled with mental health. So me and my younger sister, Olivia, um, and she grew up in a very different time period than what we're growing up in. And she had to navigate, you know, helping us through our mental illnesses and figuring out that process. So I just wanted to have her on so she could talk about, you know, her experiences and her perspective, just to switch it up a little bit. Um, so yeah, thanks for being here, mom. Sure. Anytime. Yeah. Um, me and Anne actually had a crazy week this week because my older sister, Emma actually gave birth to her second daughter on Monday. So me and Anne were responsible for watching my niece, Charlotte. So my mom came down to Pittsburgh and stayed for a couple of days. And then we got to hang out with my niece until, you know, my sister and her fiance were able to bring baby home. So we had a little bit of a wild week, so I'm glad we were able to squeeze this in and get you recorded. Yeah, it was a little bit of a hectic week. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, dealing with Charlotte alone was chaos. (laughs) (laughs) And then three pets. (laughs) And three pets. Oh my gosh. But yeah, now we have a new little baby girl as a part of our family. And we're actually just looking at pictures before we got on the Zoom call because my sister keeps sending more and more pictures of Lila and it's just fun to have a new little baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, what else did I do this week? We had the craziness of the baby and then, oh yeah, me and Courtney went to our spa appointment yesterday. So as a part of my two-year anniversary celebration with Corbin, um, he actually got me and my best friend a spa appointment. So we went and got massages yesterday and we went and got lunch. So that was also a fun time. How was your anniversary celebration? Oh my gosh, it was so good. (laughs) We (laughs) ate so much food. We went to carnivores, which is like where we went on our first date and we ate so much food. We literally brought home over half of it. And then we went and got some drinks afterwards. And then we ended up, we ended up at home at like by 1030 and we were making like drunk Sundays in the kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) I love carnivores. I love their food. Yeah. So that was nice to have like some fun things to do. I mean, like obviously the baby coming was fun, but you know, just some relaxing things to do. It was a nice way to end mm-hmm. out the week. So. Yeah. Well, that's a good yeah. week then for you. You had a good, yeah, a lot going on. I know. And then you'll be back next week. So we'll be hanging yeah. out and doing a bunch more stuff anyway. So that'll be good. So Anne, for all those people out there that are wondering why I don't call my mom, mom, I call her Anne. It's just how it's always been. I just refer to my parents by their first name. So Anne. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's a story behind that, why you do that. Because when we were in the store, when you guys were younger, everybody would be calling mom, mom, and I would never look. So (laughs) when you guys wanted my attention, you guys said Anne, and then I would look. That's why I think you still do that to this day. (laughs) Oh my God. I love that. I forgot about that. Yeah. I also need to get your attention when we go on public because you're prone to leaving me in public when I was a child. <laughs> yeah, that happened only twice. Yeah, that was not a not your finest moment there. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't. But hey, you survived. 
life. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So do you want to start by just talking a little bit about you? Just introduce yourself. Tell us who you are. Maybe talk a little bit about your background, like your childhood growing up, you know, what it was like to have a lot of siblings and stuff like that. Okay. Um, Let's see. I grew up in Connellsville, Pennsylvania, which is a small town. Everybody knew everybody. There are two high schools and um, my mom sent, um, I have seven brothers and sisters. So four, four sisters, three brothers, six of them were older than me. One is five years younger than me. And um, technically the doctor told my mom she shouldn't have any children after this first six. And she ended up having a miscarriage and then had me and waited five years and then had my other sister. Um, And so we lived, my mom sent us all to the Catholic high school there, Catholic grade school, all of us went through. My dad worked full time at the electric company. Um, My mom was, um, she was a stay-at-home mom. And then when I was around, I think two years, about two or three, whatever it was, she went back to work for a lawyer in town, just part-time, a couple hours after school when the older kids would get home and they could watch me and my younger sister. And um, and then she ended up working there until she retired. And um, let's see, so we, it was kind of um, everybody knew everybody kind of town. You didn't talk about like mental health. If you did, they thought you were, you know, like there was something wrong with you. Like you had astigmatism and you weren't um you just weren't normal basically is what it was and no one ever talked about that depression or anything even though it happened you just didn't talk about that kind of stuff um so I lived in Connorsville I went to college at IEP I moved to Pittsburgh after that I lived in Monroeville for two years and moved back to Connorsville for two years and then I moved up to Erie because um your your dad lived in Erie so that's why uh, I moved up here and then we got married, then had you and Care Emma a year apart. And then four years later, we had Olivia. And then two more years, we had Rachel. So we've been, in, I've been in Erie for, well, let's see, 29 years now. Worked at the VA in Pittsburgh right out of college. And I've stayed there since um, then transferred up here to Erie. And I've been in with the VA since I got out of college. So basically, um, 30, it'll be 33 years in July. So same company, different jobs throughout the facility. And now I'm working at the Vizen level. Um, and, uh, I work full-time was part-time when you guys were younger, when I had, after I had uh, Olivia, I went part-time for 20 hours a week, which was really nice because then I was able to do all of the volunteer things at school. I was able to be like a um, co-leader for Girl Scouts. I did the play as a producer with you guys, did room mom, did field trips, all that kind of stuff because I was able to go part-time and then went back full-time after Rachel was like eight or so or, or like third grade. So whatever that would be eight or nine. And so now um at this point, everybody's gone basically. You and Emma <laughs> moved to Pittsburgh and Rachel and Olivia are both at Slippery Rock. So they come home periodically, but not very much. And they're busy. Yeah, they're busy. They don't need me anymore either. Um, So my life was basically uh, revolved around the kid, you kids, you girls, um, and then uh, my work and my circle of friends that I had and my activities with my friends. So 
and now it's just your dad and I, so we're the only ones home. So we don't really do too much and because of things going, we're afraid to go some places, but we kind of like, um, we don't do as much as we used to, but we do plan like um, outings with you guys in Pittsburgh. And we try to do those kinds of things with the, the Charlotte and that kind of stuff. But, and that's basically me in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's basically you, your grandma. Now you just got a promotion yeah. at the VA. Like you said, you know, everyone's gone. So it's just you and dad. Um, Emma mentioned this on her episode of the podcast, but it's not something that I've talked a lot about on the podcast is that yes, dad did suffer um, a very severe stroke a couple of years back. And mm-hmm. he is now immunocompromised. So with everything going on with COVID, like you said, you're not able to do that much. Um, so just so everyone's kind of aware of, you know, all the factors. But before we talk about, you know, kind of currently and then me and Olivia and our mental health issues, I kind of want to talk a little bit about your childhood, because like you said, you know, mental health wasn't talked about, even though things were happening, people didn't bring it up because like you said, there was such a stigma. Um, So I feel like especially you living with seven other siblings in a, you know, one house time, like not that big for, you know as many people that were living in it, there definitely probably had to be some, you know, struggles with that mentally, you know, did any of your siblings experience any mental health issues? Not that they like outright talked about it, but is there anything that you remember looking back saying, yeah, this definitely was going on, you know? Oh yeah. Well, so, um, our house was, we all lived in the house with one bathroom. So that's 10 people with one bathroom. So I can remember being younger and like they left the water in the tub and you took a bath after someone else, basically, and you had to take turns. So you like had to get in and out. You were allowed to be like in the bathroom too long, you know, or you showered with your sister. I mean, that kind of stuff. Um, Not in a weird way, but I mean, like, that's just how it was. And we, um, I was always, um, I was always kind of a nervous kid. I can remember being like in grade school and I was a nervous child. Um, and I can remember having stomach aches and telling my mom, like, I can't go to school because I got a stomach ache. And um, she would say, and I can remember like lying to her, telling her that I, did, I didn't want to go to school because I had a stomach ache and stuff because I just didn't want to go to school. And I had, um, I had fainting spells when I would be walking to school by myself. And so, you know, that my mom took me to the hospital, we did all kinds of tests and the, they determined like there wasn't anything physically wrong with me, anything like that. It's maybe my size and my head at the time was a little bigger than it should have been for my body. Cause I was just a really tiny kid. Um, and so their solution to that was that my older brother drove me to school every day. So I didn't walk to school by myself because I could, I'd be walking up, they had a steep hill by the school and I'd walk up the hill and the lady from the bank had seen me like passing out on the hill and she came running out to get me the one day. Um, but like, I had that kind of thing when I was younger, I didn't struggle with like depression, but I did have that where I was a very anxious child and I was nervous. And they had one time tested me for like ulcers and different things too, because of the, they thought something like that was going on. And so that I know carried over through as an adult, even as a mother, because I was always very anal about things and be like, you know, we got to do this, we got to do that. We got to, you know, hurry up, let's go. So that kind of anxious um, tendencies kind of carried over. And with 
the older brothers and sisters, no one ever talked about any of that kind of stuff. Like I never heard of depression or anxiety or any of that kind of stuff when I was younger. We didn't talk about that. Um, no one talked about that. I'm like, even my sister experienced a traumatic um, event where someone tried to kidnap her. And like, we didn't talk about that after like the trial and everything. Like I was younger and no one really talked about it. So um, you didn't talk freely about things like that. You didn't go to a counselor. You didn't go to a therapist. You didn't talk about that kind of stuff. I went to therapists after I had you girls because I was so stressed out because of having to handle all four of you work and, you know, everything else of the household duties and with your dad working and being on the road, sometimes it was always um, a lot for me. So, you know, like they gave me techniques to handle that kind of stress and um, which helped, you know, like I put more pressure, not pressure, but put some of the responsibility on you girls that, you know, when we traveled, I gave you a list. This is what you pack and let you pack and so that I didn't pack for you anymore yeah so stuff like that we didn't talk about that kind of stuff until you got old I got older and like I realized you know like I can't do everything myself I can't be I can't um be the only one doing things I have to let some of that go and let you girls do things like your dad do things and like that kind of stuff I couldn't control everything yeah. And th- what you're describing, like your anxiety, how you get stomach aches and you would pass out a lot. I feel like that's a lot of the things that I experienced when I was younger, like when we would go, cause I also attended Catholic school. If people who have listened to the podcast before know that a lot of my anxiety stems from the Catholic church and the Catholic faith and what I learned in Catholic school. And, um, I would have the same thing where we'd go to mass every Friday and I would pass out and everyone wrote it off as, oh, she's just overheating or, you know, things like that. When it was actually just me every single week having a panic attack because I was so afraid to mess something up in church or make a sound or draw attention to myself. So yeah, definitely relating to a lot of those symptoms of like passing out, having those stomach aches, you know, lying because you don't want to actually admit what's really going on. You just want to give someone the easiest thing to tell them so they understand it and don't ask any further questions. So yeah, definitely sounds like a lot of anxiety. Um, And then also how you mentioned, you know, you went to therapy, you got techniques, so you stopped taking control of everybody. And you said, everyone needs to start doing things for themselves. That mm-hmm. really sounds like, um, the OCPD, you know, I talk about how I have OCPD, which I didn't know what that was until like a year and a half ago when I got diagnosed, but it's essentially a perfectionism personality disorder. And, you know, you think your way is the only way of doing things and it has to be done your way. And it's this sense of sense of like, I have to control everything. I can't rely on other people to do things. And that's something I've struggled with living with Corbin, especially is realizing, you know, that's how I grew up. I watched you kind of maneuver in that same way where you would kind of handle things and you were kind of always the one like making sure things were done the specific way. And I've noticed that I kind of tend to do that too. And it is really hard to release that control and just saying, okay, I can't micromanage everything. I need to trust that these people are going to do what they need to do. And it may not be my way, but it, I have to just like release that control and just not hold on to that stress any longer. Um, so it sounds like you kind of struggle with that. I'm not trying to diagnose you. I'm just saying similar things that I've experienced, you know, um, 
but that one is hard to just releasing that control, especially when you struggle with anxiety, you know, it's that need to have control because you don't want to go into something that's unknown and you don't want to have to navigate unknown situations because then that brings on that fear, which then manifests into anxiety. So yeah, definitely a lot going on there. And like you said, you didn't really struggle with depression as a child. Um, but I know there were some times later in life where you did experience some depression, not like clinical depression or ongoing depression or anything like that. Um, but you've definitely had moments of depression, correct? Yeah. 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 I think that's a normal part of life though, too, where you're not always high and not everything's going the way you want it to be going. So there were, there were a couple of times where I was not happy. Um, and it was the situation that I was in and I knew I needed to change the situation in order to be, to make my life better. So my thought process is that I make it better, change it. And then I move on. I don't dwell on it. I don't think about it anymore. It is what it is. And that was always our motto. Like, you know, that's what it is. Say la vie, I would tell you guys, you know, that's what it is. That's life. We got to do deal with it and move on. And that's what I usually did. I don't like, I didn't go into like a clinical depression. I was just not happy in my life and I needed to change it. Yeah. And I think that's something that, you know, is good to bring up is the fact that not everybody is going to be positive and happy and things aren't always going to be great all the time. You know, everybody is going to experience these periods of, you know, highs and lows. And so that's really important to let people know that, you know, even if you don't struggle with ongoing anxiety and ongoing depression, you're still going to have these moments where things aren't as great and there's nothing wrong with admitting, Hey, things aren't great right now, but what can I do to make this situation better almost? So I think that's really good to, you know, have people here. Yeah. And I think it, um, one of the times is when, you know, your dad had a stroke, which was so unexpected at 50 to have a stroke. And I, the thought process of him being in the hospital and maybe not walking again or talking again, or, you know, any of that, and then being in a, a rehab facility for four weeks after that and coming home when in the fact that they told me, you know, we need to assess your house for um, wheelchair mobility and you know like that he may not work again at 50 and like how am I gonna figure this all out by myself you know and that reality check of you know like he may not ever be out of the bed again you know like that kind of thing yeah Um, because he lost he lost movement on like the entire half of his body you know it wasn't like oh he had a stroke and you know it was minor effects he had a stroke and then he almost like didn't make it to surgery in time. And then they had to do like double surgeries and like, he almost didn't survive those. And then coming mm-hmm. out of that, it was lucky that he a even lived, but then also on top of that, he lost half of like function in his body. So it's a really big turnaround and a really dramatic change to have someone in your life who like Emma mentioned was, you know, this person who was always doing stuff, always like traveling for work, always outside. And then for him to go from that to not even being able to like maneuver around the house by himself or like get food for himself or just the basic things. It's a big toll on anybody, you know, and you being the one that is with him every single day. And you're the one that has to make sure he's on top of his medicine. Like that's a lot for you also to take on. Yeah. And that was a big change being a caregiver that I never had to do with him before. You know, he always did his own laundry. He did, you know, he did everything for himself. Like I very rarely had to do things for him 
And when he went through that and then came home, it was a huge adjustment for me and everybody else in the family because, you know, technically he lost part of his brain that, that day that he had the stroke because he couldn't, he still doesn't think the same way like he used to. Um, so it's a challenge every day dealing with that and trying to um, just get through some days is difficult because he doesn't, um, you know, like you can't reason with him sometimes about certain things. I mean, he was like that before, but like now it's just um, a different kind of level of that. And so yeah. that was a big turning point in my life where I, I had some depression at that time because I didn't know how my life was going to be at that point. So, you know, and then you just, you know, I say you're not big on faith in that, but I still am. But um, like I, you know, I prayed that, you know, I'd get through that period and we did. So you know, it's not back to the same thing where it was because he still can't use his left hand and that kind of stuff. But um, it's better than him being in the ground, you know. So yeah, that's the point that we had to come away from that. And that was another period of time when we weren't sure. And a lot of, you know, I'm you guys, you girls and I both, we, we were all like, um, weren't sure what's going to happen. And then after, you know, nine months later, then he has seizures and he could have died then as well and didn't um so that's a change in his our, our whole lifestyle our dyna- family dynamic too yeah and I was gonna say when that happened it wasn't you know just he was affected or just you was affected like we were all affected by that you know Rachel was still in grade school she was really young mm-hmm. Olivia was also like not that old as well I was in my sophomore year of college And since I only went to school about an hour away, most of my weekends, I would just be coming home, you know, to help you guys out because, you know, Olivia and Rachel were there, but they couldn't do a ton, you know, because like I said, they were younger. And then I also was juggling, you know, school, all of the extracurriculars. I was in my classes, I was working jobs. And then on top of that, you know, driving home on the weekends to come help you guys out and just be there. And then on top of that, you know, I was told, Hey, you might not get to go back to school because we don't know what's going on with dad. And we don't know if it's financially feasible or what's going to happen. So then like, I took on all of that stress as well. And, you know, I also was very depressed in that time period. I already wasn't doing well to begin with because that was, you know, still very briefly right after those back-to-back suicide attempts that I had. And I still wasn't getting treated for that. I wasn't talking about that. I wasn't getting help with that. So then to have all of that and all of those toxic relationships that I went through and then all of the dad stuff and not being able to go potentially not going back to school, you know, I was also just kind of like putting more and more stuff on myself and then not opening up about it. So then I saw a decline in my anxiety and my depression and things got really bad for me then too. So it was Mm -hmm. a very dark period for all of us all around. So it's definitely something we don't talk and it's still something we don't really, you know, acknowledge that much. Like, yes, he had a stroke. Yes, we can visibly understand that, but you know, it's a big thing that we never really talked about, like you said, how in your family things would happen, big traumatic events, and then everything would keep going on. Like nothing ever changed, you know? And like our way to deal with stuff is just joking to cope with it. And I, so I think we do make a lot of jokes about the situation because instead of being serious and that's how we deal with our emotions is through like dark humor almost. 
Yeah, I think so too. I think that we do do the joking part, but I think I talk to you guys openly about that kind of stuff. Um, but we don't as a family group. Yeah. Talk about that stuff. So, and like, I have a good support system with my girlfriends that, you know, like through all of that, that's who I talk to about all that stuff. I don't necessarily talk to you guys about it, but I talk to my friends about it. And for me, that's the emotional support that helps me get through a lot of those times because those three or four girlfriends and my work friends at that time really got me through that whole thing. Because if I didn't have those, those like a few coworkers and those, my other three or four really good friends, you know, that sold up like meal plans for us and people brought us food, you know, and all that stuff, sent us gift cards. And I mean, if I'd, and they, you know, came over and talked to me and sat and just like, you know, whatever you need kind of thing that really helped me get through all of that. And I talked to you girls about it. But as a family unit, we've never really discussed like everything. I mean, it's just kind of like, you know, your dad can't do that anymore. He's not, you know, can't do his hunting, fishing, go down to camp and do that kind of stuff. We all know it's there, but we just don't like say, you know, he can't do that. Basically, you know what I mean? It's just not. Yeah. And I mean, sometimes, yeah, you need to talk about that stuff. But I talk to you guys about it, but Mm -hmm. maybe one on one or a couple of you together, I know in the car, like. Olivia and Rachel and I always we would have like discussions and things about different things coming back from pap and grandma's and you know that kind of stuff but I don't think that we're big on like just like throwing everything out there either yeah yeah and that's definitely been something that has been a common theme in like our family and Mm -hmm. you know I've talked to you about this before I've brought it up just you know as me individually that's something I wish for my own mental health and like my own peace of mind is something that I wish we would have done more in my childhood is actually Mm -hmm. just outright talked about it all together and just gotten these, you know, big things that were maybe traumatic or maybe not normal that happened to us. I wish we would have just kind of talked about them as they happened instead of sweeping things under the rug and then just trying to put on this like facade of like oh everything is great even though it wasn't but that's how you and dad were raised you know that time period of your life like you said people didn't talk about these things openly and Mm -hmm. you didn't talk about them with your children because you know your parents never talked to you about these things or certain situations like this as well so you know it's not your guys's fault I don't blame you for that because that's how you were raised and that's all you knew and you guys didn't have that same how do I want to say it? Like the same openness and like vulnerability that people afford today, you know, people open up about mental health today or struggles going on in their lives or traumatic events happening within their families. And people are so supportive. People are so kind. People are telling you you're brave and thank you for speaking up. But if you would have done that when we were kids or when you were kids, like you said, people would have looked at you like you were crazy and that you needed to be institutionalized, you know? Right. And I agree. I think that, you know, you knew like that you could tell me things um, as a child, but we just didn't, we didn't talk about that. I mean, we didn't, we did I mean, I would ask you and everybody would say, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. You know, like that kind of stuff but no one really opened up about it. And maybe I should have probed more and like ask more, diff- like now I would know to ask different questions and things like that where, cause it's more out there. Like you get more training on it. Um, there's more information on the internet. You know, you can Google things. I can, I learn a lot by just looking up things, you know, 
So like there's more information readily available now too. And like, I can remember the first time you called me with like a panic attack where you couldn't breathe and you couldn't talk and you were so upset. And like that to me, I, I felt like I was totally helpless because I could always fix you. You know, like I could always take you to the doctors. I could always find out what's wrong and could do it. I didn't have to do that with this when you call me. So, you know, for me, that, that was scary and that was hard to do because my heart dropped and I didn't know what to do. You know, like you're an hour and a half away. I can't just run down there to get you, you know, and say, everything's going to be okay, you know, but, and to say the right thing, I didn't know how to fix it. I didn't know what to say, you know, so just talking to you and trying to calm you down to take deep breaths and reminding you, you know, like, it'll be okay. Don't worry. I'm here for you. I can help you with whatever you need. If you're needing to look up something, I looked it up for you and sent you things that might help you make a decision on it. And that's how I handled it because that's what I knew. And as I learned more, you know, like telling you it's going to be okay, isn't always the best thing to say to a person. So like just letting you talk is sometimes better and letting you know that there's, you know, things will, will change. You can change things, that kind of stuff. And that's yeah. kind of how I do it. And I encouraged you to get counseling and talk to therapists because I'm not a trained therapist. So that was my way of handling that. If you need medication, get the medication. There's no harm in getting medication. There's no shame in getting medication. If you need it, you get it, you know. And that's that's how I've always handled it with you and Olivia. And I, because, you know, like with the doctors, it's so frustrating because once you're 15, you can't, I can't get to your records. I can't find out things that happen in an appointment. So, which is fine. I don't need to know that as long as you are getting the treatment and the help that you need. But when you stop going and you stop taking the medication, there's nothing I can do at that point. And then I got to worry the whole time that, you know, is she going to commit suicide? Is she going to do this? Is she going to harm herself? Is she going to like, you know, harm someone else? Um, you know, that kind of thing. And that's where it gets really scary for as a parent that you can't be involved other than taking you to get that treatment, you know? Yeah. And like you said, you don't know the questions to ask. You don't know the symptoms. You don't know all of that. And for, you know, me and Olivia who are experiencing these things, you know, we don't know what's going on either. Cause we never knew, you know, these were a possibility. So it's hard as the person experience men- experiencing the mental illness, because you don't know what's going on. Your parent doesn't know what's going on. I saw doctors when I was younger and they still never said, Oh, this is anxiety. You know, they never diagnosed it until I was like, you know, 17, 18, when I was having suicide attempts and like substance abusing, you know? And mm. so it feels like, you know, you as the child who is mentally ill, like something's wrong with you. Like you're the defective one. Like, why can't I just be normal? Why can't I be like Emma? Why can't I be like Rachel? You know, like, why can't I be like everybody else? And, you know, when nobody has the answers for you, it's frustrating. And it's just, it makes you want to internalize it more and more because every time you talk about it, no one gets you. And so Mm -hmm. that's why it was really hard for us because, it was still kind of that same stigma where people kind of look at you differently and you didn't really want to talk about it. But I still, to this day, when I'm going through stuff and like, I'm having these like panic attacks or anxiety attacks, I still call you and you know, you always pick up and you always listen. And like you said, sometimes you don't know what to say and you don't know what to do. And sometimes the things you do say, you know, pisses me off in the moment because I'm just like, so enraged with 
the fear and everything that's going on. I don't know how to process things normally, but you still always, you know, work, like walk me through it and you help me, you know, get to a point where I'm okay. And like, like you said, you send me resources and you always have been supportive and openly said, you know, there's no shame in medication. There's no shame in therapy. And when I first started therapy, I was forced into it because I did have the, I think it was, no, because I didn't tell you about the first suicide attempt in high school, but I still had to go to therapy because they wanted me to start medication because I was so depressed. And you finally got to a point where you were like, I don't know what to do anymore. This isn't healthy. Like you just need to go see somebody. Mm -hmm. And so I got on medication and started therapy, but I didn't think anything was wrong with me. I wasn't ready to commit to therapy. I wasn't ready to open up. So I stopped going. And then, you know, the second suicide attempt started after I left for college. And then all of that stuff with my toxic relationships happened. And then, you know, more shit just kept piling on. And I tried to get on medication after everything that went down with dad And I started trying therapy again, but then again, I wasn't ready. I wasn't, you know, in that headspace where I was going to open up and take it seriously and commit to actually getting better. So then, you know, after being kind of like not believed a lot, I just denied for years and years and years. And then after I graduated college, I was so depressed where I was like, finally, I just need to do this and I need to do it right. And I need to commit and I need to get on the medication because I can't keep doing this cycle. You know, it's the same story every single year. And so it didn't work. None of it worked until I was actually open and willing to get there. And I know with Olivia, I don't want to speak on her too much just because she's not here and she has her own view on things and how I interpret things might not be correct. But she's done medication, she's done therapy, but she's in that same point where she'll go for a little bit and then she'll stop and Mm -hmm. she'll go for a little bit and then she'll stop. And I've always told you, you know, she has to be the one to be ready. She has to be the one who wants to go and wants to get help. And she has to be in the right headspace before it's going to start working for her. And so it's hard when you're somebody who loves that person and you want the best for them and you want them to get help and you want them to get on the medication But if that person isn't ready and that person isn't going to take it seriously and that person isn't ready to help themselves, then there's only so much you can do, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's hard and it's frustrating because it's not fun to watch and it's really difficult to consistently show up and support that person when you're like, just go take the medicine or just go Mm -hmm. see the therapist. But when you're mentally ill, it's just, it's, not that simple. It's not as like, oh, if I go do this, this will happen. It's, it's a lot of other factors going on internally. So you have to be the one that just says, I need to do this for me and I need to take it seriously. So. Yeah. And I see, I I like tear up because it makes me so sad to know that I can't help you in that point, you know, that I felt that I couldn't be a good support person at that time. But I learned that, you know, like, um, I couldn't help you if you weren't willing to open up, you know, like, if you can't, if you're not going to go to see a therapist and be consistent with it, then, you know, there's nothing I can do at that point, other than be there and listen. And I may not have done everything right, you know, according to what you should be doing. But, you know, like, um, I, like you said, like, I would always answer the phone, and I'd always talk to you and try to help you with something. 
but it just as a mother it's hard to see that happen yeah and I don't want you to think that you're not a good support person you've always been my main support person every time you know I see a therapist or I see a psychiatrist or I see any type of professional and they're like what is your support system like my first person that I say is my mom she is the main support person in my life because I know like you've always consistently showed up. And even though you haven't known the right things to say, or maybe the right ways to help, you've always tried your best and you did what you could in the moment. And you always did the best you could with what you had. And so as a child and as somebody who is struggling, you know, even though it's not always perfect and it may not always be, you know, the right thing to say or whatever, you always did it with love and you did it with the right intentions and you always tried your best and you consistently showed up and you never quit on us and you never made us feel bad about it. And you never, you know, put us down for it or made us feel like that stigma was there. You know, you always just met us with love and compassion and you helped us in the best way that you could. And so that's all you really can do. You know, nobody's ever going to have all of the answers. Nobody's going to ever have the exact right thing to say, because, you could say something to me and it could work and you could say something to Olivia and that might completely trigger her or she could take it in a whole different way. So it's a really tough thing to navigate. And especially for you when half of your kids are experiencing this and Olivia deals with like OCD and, you know, um, potentially bipolar and things like that, where I'm more anxiety, depression related, you know, so it's also complete separate mental illnesses that you're dealing with, but, you know, you always did your best and you were consistent. And like I said, you loved us irregardless. So I think that's all you can ask for as someone who's struggling and Mm -hmm. as someone who's a parent, you know, that's all you can really do is just work with what you got. Right. And that I need to know, like, if I'm not, if you need something, you need to tell me, you know, like if there's something I can help you with. um, And I'm usually, I'm usually a friend about things like, you know, like, if it's a money thing, I'll tell you a friend, I'll be like, no, I can't, I can't help you with that. You know, like, but I think that I need, you guys need to tell me what you need. Also. I just, if there's something that, and like, if you want to talk about something, then then tell me, we need to talk about this. Like, that's okay. But I don't always know what you need as either. So like, I mean, you're pretty good about telling me what you need. Um, But like, if you that's how we get that's the only way I'm going to find out or if I can go online and find out things about how but I'm very um I'm pro like um, therapy pro medication uh, anything that'll help you make you have a better quality of life and feel better as a person and, and live a light a productive life that's kind of where I that's my thought process on it I don't think that you should not talk about it I think you should be talking about it I think you should learn as much as you can about it that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And that's honestly one of the reasons that, you know, I was so comfortable leaning into therapy and like, I wasn't afraid to get on medication at any point is because, you know, you were always saying, just go do it. You know, it's going to help go talk to somebody, go get that help, go take the medicine, you know, do what you can. And for me, it's really helped. It's really worked, you know, 
because in the past I went from being super depressed and abusing substances and, you know, financially struggling all the time because, you know, everything was just so bad. And then once I started going to therapy and I started taking the medication consistently, I started showing up for myself in more responsible and healthy ways. And then that has led me to, you know, growing so much. I'm financially stable. You know, I'm now in a healthy relationship. I was able to, you know, buy a house and create this stable environment for myself. And I wouldn't have been able to do that. I don't think. And if I didn't go to therapy and I didn't take medication and you are the reason that I was able to get into that as quickly as I did and start, you know, trying that out because I went through a bunch of different medication combos. And that's kind of why I would stop taking them is because this one didn't really work for me, or it made me feel sick, or it made me feel like not like myself. So instead of just talking to the doctor and saying, Hey, I need to switch, I would just quit. But then once I finally found that combination and, you know, I got that support from you, especially it helped me just change my life around and honestly start doing better. And I'm not saying I'm perfect all the time. You know, I still call you where I'm going through panic attacks or I still have depression. Literally two weeks ago, I released an episode, like I said, where I was basically crying the whole time because things were not good for me. So even though I'm doing therapy and I'm taking the medication, it doesn't mean that everything's going to be perfect all of the time. So like you said, in the beginning of the episode, you go through these highs and lows, but it's just what tools are you using to manage that? And how are you navigating that? And how are you getting back to that place of where you're at least, you know, flatline or stable? Right. Yeah. And I think, and you don't, the other thing is that you can't take it personally either, because like when you call me in that kind of a, um, and when you're in one of those episodes like that, you call me and like, you snap at me and you like yell at me or whatever. Um, like, I don't take that personally. I mean, of course it makes me feel bad, but it's just that I know that you need help and that you need someone to talk to. And we need to find out how to correct the situation or improve the situation that you're in kind of thing. Yeah. And just like what I'm feeling in those moments is you don't even think about like, what you're saying and you don't even think about how this is affecting the other person. It's just in those moments, especially when I call you, because I usually call you as like a last resort thing, you know, Mm -hmm. like when things are just continuously getting bad and I don't know what to do anymore, I pick up the phone and call you. And at that point, usually like my blood in my body is like vibrating. So like everything feels like it's just like shaking like crazy. And like, I feel like if I say one thing, I'm either going to explode in anger or burst into tears. And so sometimes it starts as anger and then very quickly turns to tears. And a lot of the times, you know, I answer the, you answer the phone. And as soon as I hear your voice, I immediately just like, I'm like, oh shit, things are not okay. And then it usually ends up in tears very quickly. But like, once I know, like I hear you and you start saying like, you know, it's going to be okay, or we can figure this out, or we can make a plan or we're going to do this and it's going to be all right. You know, then I finally feel that comfort and that safety of like, okay, this person is genuinely here for me and they're going to do what it takes. You know, they want to see me be okay. And so having that like safety almost, then you just feel so like 
seen and feel so like safe in that moment, then I just kind of like am able to start releasing it. And so then the crying comes in because I'm just able to like get that all out of my body. And then normally after, you know, we get that out of the way, then we go into a completely normal conversation and things are totally fine again. Mm -hmm. But it's just getting to that point of like, you know, you have to get calmed down. And like you said, you can't take it personally. Like when I had Corbin on the podcast, that's something he mentioned is you can't take the other person's mental illness, like as an attack on you, because that's not what it is. And it's hard to do, but it's just that again, you have to be there to support them, you know? Right. Right. And you can't understand that some days aren't going to be good and some days are. So you, and that's normal for any, I don't want to say normal, but I mean, that's just how life is. You just, yeah have your ups and downs you deal with them some people deal with them differently than others and some people need help dealing with them so and there's not any any, there's nothing wrong with someone asking for the help to deal with what their life in their life is going on yeah but but I'm kind of this the thought that if it happens then you know you it happened and you move on and you, you do something different or to change it or make it better or you know it's going to get better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like I said, if you're somebody who's struggling, like you have to get to that point on your own, Mm -hmm. you can't have someone being like, Oh, you have to do this because if that's the case, you know, when you're depressed, you're not going to be like, Oh, yep. This person said I have to do this. So I'm going to do it. You have to get to that point on your own. And it takes longer for some people. And it's frustrating here right now. If you're somebody who is struggling that, oh, you have to come to terms with it and you have to kind of figure it out on your own. And you don't have to figure it out on your own because you can go to therapy and there's things that you can do to get to that point with someone else. But Mm -hmm. again, it has to all come from internally. You have to be the one who's ready to take action on it. So yeah, yeah, you can't fully, you know, put that blame or put that off because you want to put it on someone else. You have to take accountability and you have to take responsibility for your own life and your own feelings. And I think that's something that took me a really long time to figure it out. But once I did kind of have that eye-opening moment of, oh, I can take control of this and I can fix this and I can choose to keep going down this one path or to another. And then once I realized that, you know, I was able to control a lot more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because a big thing with mental illnesses is you feel like you don't have control and you just feel like you're kind of being like thrown through life and you're kind of sometimes feel like you're outside of your body and you're just going through the motions. But once you can get that like peace of mind back and just be like, hey, this is reality, I can change this, then things start to get better. And then you realize that you can deal with it. You don't think you can, but you can deal with it and you can get mm-hmm. make your life better. And um, where you feel comfortable and you can live a productive life basically. But no, I think you did talk about a lot of really, really good stuff. And I just thank you for, you know, being honest, being open and being open and being vulnerable to share these experiences, because I know it's not always easy, um, to talk about, you know, such personal things. So I'm really glad that you were able to come on and we were able to have this conversation because I think where it did go was some really good spots. Yeah, I think so too. I'm glad I, I did it. I was nervous about doing it because I didn't know what I was going to say, but you know what, just to help one person or to help you or to help like Olivia, because nothing is that bad that we can't get through it. Mm-hmm. 
Yep. And that's the whole reason of this podcast. You know, if it can help one person feel less alone, then amazing. That's the whole point of it. Oh, I do too. And I think that, you know, like no one needs to feel like they're alone. There's always someone out there that can help them. And I know they're starting like different support groups with parents of children with uh, mental illness and things like that. I mean, those are great kind of resources as well for people. So um, seek, there's always someone that's going to help you. Well, thank you again for being here, mom. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Love you. Love you. All right, guys, that is it for this week's episode. If you want to go check out the full unedited interview between me and my mom, you can subscribe to my Patreon, which will be linked in the show notes. If you want to stay up to date with the Search for Serotonin podcast, please follow the Search for Serotonin Instagram account, which you can find at the Search for Serotonin. Also, if you like this episode, feel free to share it with your friends, share it with your own mom, share it with your parents. Or if you would like to leave a rating and review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, I would really appreciate those reviews as well. All right, guys, thanks for coming back for another week. And as always, remember that this world is better with you in it. This week's song is Raspberry Beret by Prince. Raspberry Beret is one of the only songs I ever remember my mom singing when I was growing up. My mom never was a huge fan of music and she really never liked to listen to it. But whenever she was, you know, listening to music or singing, she was usually singing Raspberry Beret by Prince. So if you want to check out Raspberry Beret, it will be on the Search for Serotonin playlist, which will be linked in the show notes.